Take note that in this series, I aggregate diverse viewpoints, opinions, analysis, interpretations, and doctrines of many secular sources and Christian denominations, including Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox, and many others. As a historian, my goal is to remain objective and open-minded in search of the historical Jesus. Welcome to Historical Jesus. I'm Mark Vinette. What is the reliability of both the New and Old Testaments? How reliable is the Bible? Let's continue tackling this basic question accompanied by Pints with Aquinas. Let's talk about the Gospels. If you were going to attribute the four Gospels to somebody, why would it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Maybe John, but why Matthew, Mark, and Luke? Can you speak to that? Yeah. Matthew, maybe, but still an unlikely candidate because he is not a leader among the Twelve, and he's got a mark against him by the fact that he was a tax collector, which is kind of like being a drug dealer in our society. Is Um, it really that bad? It is really that bad. Yeah. I think that's the best analogy. Ancient people looked at tax collectors the way that we look at drug dealers. In other words, you are an unscrupulous person that has no problem with making a living doing something that's utterly destructive to society. So Matthew, a bit of an unlikely candidate to be attributed to as this first gospel. Mark, even worse, because Mark has a sketchy CV because he abandoned Paul in Acts, and Paul distrusted him so much that he refused to take him on missionary journeys. So that's Mark's checkered resume. And Luke is kind of a nobody, Paul's assistant, not an apostle. So why would you attribute it to him? And indeed, the fake gospels or the pseudepigraphical gospels, they all choose one of the 12 and go with that. I'm James, or I'm Philip, or something like that. And why do we know that James, Philip, Peter, how do we know that these Gospels are false? Because the manuscript attribution of them is so late. Unlike the authentic Gospels, where we have, for example, in the case of the Gospel of John, we got a complete copy from the year 200. These fake Gospels, their attestation goes back to 350 and so on, plus the information in the pseudepigraphical Gospels, the information in them, and the theological issues that are being dealt with, etc., reflect later heretical movements that we can trace in the church and don't have that nice first century Judaic cultural background that we find in the authentic Gospels. You know, speaking of the Gospel of Matthew, let's talk about that. My buddy Michael Barber just published last year a book, I believe it's called Jesus in the Temple, Memory, Methodology, and the Gospel of Matthew with Cambridge University Press. Like, you don't get any better than Cambridge. And in that book, uh, Michael Barber points out that again and again in the Gospel of Matthew, there is a presumption that the temple is still standing In Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember, Mm. what do we think? That's a throwaway line that he wasn't in earnest about that? And there's no little explanation by the gospel author to kind of like adapt that for a temple-less situation. The gospel just seems to presume that there are Jewish Christians that are still using the temple. Again, later in, I believe it's in Matthew 17, we have that discussion of the temple tax. And Jesus is asked, do you pay the tax of the temple? And he tells Peter to go catch the fish and pay the temple tax on his behalf. 
After the destruction of the temple in the year 70, that was very provocative because the Romans continued to tax Jews for the temple, but instead of sending it to the Jerusalem temple, they sent it to the temple of Zeus or Jupiter. And so, in the Gospel of Matthew, the gospel seems to be approving of Jewish Christians just quietly continuing to pay the Mm. temple tax. But that would have been very scandalous after the year 70 when the temple tax was going to paganism. Another sign that this document is being published prior to the destruction of the temple. That means then that this document has to be written by a contemporary of Jesus. Further, when we look at Matthew 16 and the whole discussion of binding and loosing, where that power to bind and loose is given to St. Peter, that language of binding and loosing is unique to first century Judaism. Binding meant to authoritatively prohibit something based on your interpretation of the divine law, and loosing meant to authoritatively permit something based on your interpretation of God's law, basically the Torah or the Pentateuch. So, binding and loosing was contemporary terminology for first century Jews prior to the destruction of the temple. After the destruction of the temple, the language changes because in the Mishnah, which is this Jewish lore written about the year 200, we don't get that language of binding and loosing anymore. So, this is reflecting this first century reality. And there was a debate within first century Judaism about who had the authority to do this. The Sadducees claimed to have it. The Pharisees claimed to have it. The Essenes claimed to have the authority to do this. And Jesus is saying, none of y'all have this authority. I'm giving it to my number two guy here. He's going to do it. And then in Matthew 18, 18, it's also shared with the apostles as a group. So again, what am I saying, Matt? I'm saying that we find authentic Jewish terminology, concepts, cultural reality, which really only existed prior to the destruction of the temple, being reflected in this Gospels, which is all the more powerful because it's indirect, because a faker would call attention to his claims. But this is subtle stuff that it really rings true. A veneer is a fake, right? But when you cut down into the wood, you want to see, do I still have oak down there? And so this subtle stuff that's in the Gospels is cutting into the heart of the Gospels and seeing, does it still really ring true as Jewish documents of the first century when we really get into the fine detail, the high resolution analysis? And yeah, they do. They really do. So I think it provides us really strong confirmation of our faith. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. I like what you brought up about the temple, and I've heard people use the destruction of the temple to show that these Gospels were prior to that before. Can you help us understand how traumatic it would have been for a first century Jew for the temple to be destroyed, and therefore you wouldn't just write about it lightly if it had been destroyed? (laughs) Right. 
Well, the temple was the center of Jewish identity and worship. It's been likened to a combination of Wall Street, the White House, and the National Cathedral. It was a bank. It was a university, as it were. It was where a lot of education went on. That's why we see Jesus debating with with the scholars in the temple. It had libraries. It was a center of learning. It was the whole focus of Jewish religion, culture, and identity. Moreover, it was believed to have been built on the place where Abraham had attempted to sacrifice his son Isaac back in Genesis 22, and the sacrifices that went on in the temple were regarded as memorializing that great self-sacrifice of their ancestor Isaac. And the temple also was built and decorated to represent the whole universe. It was really a microcosm. So, for example, the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies was blue, and it was embroidered with the sun and the moon and the stars Mm -hmm. to represent the universe. And likewise, the high priest wore a blue garment to match the veil, which also had the sun, moon, and the stars embroidered on it because he was the cosmic man. He was the man whose body was the temple, as it were, or he was the concentration of the temple. And when you think about Jewish worldview, the whole world is a temple, but then the whole world is, as it were, concentrated in the Jerusalem temple, and then the whole Jerusalem temple is concentrated into the person of the high priest. And so you have these target of successive concentration of the spiritual essence of all of creation. So when you destroy the temple, you are symbolically destroying the whole universe. And that's why in the Gospels, when we have our Lord's end times discourses in Matthew 23 through 25, you'll find a mixture of language of the destruction of the temple being prophesied, which actually was fulfilled in the year 70. But that's also will be mixed with language describing the destruction of the world at the end of time. And why? Can Jesus and the gospel authors mix the prophecies of the destruction of the temple with prophecies of the end of the world? It's because the temple literally represented the whole world. And so the destruction in the year 70 of the Jerusalem temple was a type, sign, and prophecy of what's going to happen to the whole creation prior to the Lord's return. Did you know that word of mouth is the best way to grow a podcast? It helps us expand our audience by getting us more notice and keeps us going and growing. So please, folks, spread the word to family and friends. Thank you for the wonderful comments, messages, ratings, and reviews. All of them are regularly posted for your reading pleasure on patreon.com slash markvinette. Thank you for sharing your time with me. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calotrin Healthy Weight Loss Ron in Texas lost 35 pounds. Marie in Pennsylvania lost 117 pounds with Calotrin. Diane not only lost weight, but she also found relief from arthritis. Lynn lost over 45 pounds. Calotrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body which decreases as we age. Taking Calitrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calitrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of their President's Day sale. 
buy the 90-day supply, and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word HISTORY to the code 30605 and we'll send you a link to this special offer. Again, text HISTORY, that's H-I-S-T-O-R-Y, using the code 30605.